Denver's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is WSOP Gold Bracelet winner and high stakes crusher slash DGen Alex Fallow Epstein. Fallow and I recently met while providing commentary in the Polk versus Negranu challenge over on the Solve for Why YouTube, and it quickly became obvious to me that I had to get this dude onto the podcast. He's a hilarious and highly intelligent human being who has absolutely no fear in speaking his mind, which means you're about to hear some amazing behind-the-scenes, high-stakes poker stories. If that's the kind of thing you are into, I would suggest sticking around. In today's episode, you're going to learn all about the roller coaster ride Fallow took to hopping into the nosebleed streets, why Fallow was once invited to a private game and what led to him punching the whale square in the mouth, what really went down a few months back when Dan Bolzerian accused JRB of cheating him in a home game, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the rambling, gambling, Las Vegas high stakes private game mainstay, Alex Fallow Epstein. Fallow, welcome to the show, sir. How you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Glad it's my here. it's my pleasure, man. It was uh super fun calling doing doing the play by play for <laughs> Solve for Why, despite neither of us being heads up specialists or knowing very much about uh, heads up no limit hold'em strategy. It was an adventure. Yeah, I got to uh, to test my uh, commentary bluffing range. I guess we made a lot of stuff up on the fly, but I think we got away with most of it. Yeah, I think I think we got away with most of it. Um, I, I think you missed my round two, where me and Andre did it, and they ended up playing over, and I got high, and by the end of it, I was like barely coherent. It was like nine. It was like an hour and a half after the edible. Well, now I'm gonna have to go back and check that out <laughs> because that that sounds uh, much more entertaining to watch than most coverages. I, I was I felt immediate shame afterwards. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you should move the edibles portion up earlier to take that chance, uh, make that a lot more likely towards the end of streams. Yeah, I, I think I started. I, I talked trash to the audience that wasn't even my audience. You know, it was Sulfur Wise audience. I got high on stream on not my brand. Wasn't my finest hour. I am sorry I missed that. And uh, <laughs> if I if I co-commentate No Limit Hold'em again, I may want to have have that experience. Yeah, you may have to play some sort of do some sort of prop bet where loser has to take the edible or, earlier in the stream and and get that rolling. Yeah, that that's perfectly fine with me, man. So typically starting out the show, I ask my guest about their story. So tell me the story. How how did you get involved playing cards? Yeah, I played poker recreationally since I was eight or nine, always loved it. Always played card games, played hearts, played magic, played a little bit of bridge, um, got into poker later, took it a little bit more seriously starting at 18, moved out and was on my own at at 17, 18, and was using that as a a side source of income playing on full tilt at, at 18 uh, but never really, quote unquote, professionally, still always pretty much recreationally. 
Um, how, how old are you? I'm 29 now. You're 29. So yep. 17 was 12 years ago. So we're yep. talking 2009. Yep. And you moved out of your house when you were 17. Like, how did that come about? Just one of those things that happened. My parents and I never, never really saw eye to eye um, on anything, <laughs> I guess. And uh, it, it was easier for me to, to head my own way a little bit early before my, my senior year of high school. And I uh, had saved up a bit from, from poker. And um, I, I had my first fake ID. Most kids, I, I know it's to drink, but, but my fake ID was to play in, in an 18 plus casino. Um, I think it was in, man, I can't, it's like in Rancho Cordero or something, California. There was this, this 18 plus casino that I would drive an hour and a half to to play at, at 16 and 17. Yeah. And were you winning? I was fortunately, I don't know. I have no idea if that was just luck at the time or everybody else was terrible, but yeah, I, I did okay as a 17 year old and did okay as an 18 year old old enough to, to pay some bills at the time. And uh, you mentioned real estate. So you move out at 17. Yep. Um, what was your plan when you moved out? The, the plan um, was to go to college. And then I, I had started going. I, I um, had gotten into Cal at the time and was paying for my own tuition and taking on student debt. But I ended up getting my real estate license at 18 um, in my first semester of college and really enjoyed it and just decided to go with that. Dropped out um, less than a full semester into school and just pursued real estate um, and focused on that for about the last 10 years up until December 2000, what, December 2018, fall of maybe late fall, early, early winter of 2018, when I had had saved up a bit of money and, and wanted to give poker more of a legitimate shot. And I know that, you know, you play some really big games, right? Like you, you play some, some really big games, like seems like you had to be taking poker somewhat seriously in the meantime. No, I hadn't played any two big games before then. So February, March, March of 2019. And one of the first uh, tournaments I, I, I played after taking seriously was battle of the Bay thousand um, dollar buy-in in, in the Bay area, the, the probably the biggest tournament in Northern California. I ended up binking that. Um, and because that went so well, won that for, for about a hundred, uh, decided to set aside and say, you know what, I'm just going to take this money, go to Vegas for the summer for WSOP. I've never had the full WSOP experience and let's see what happens. And uh, the first major tournament I played in was the 10K short deck and ended up w winning that. And then that's when that's when the big games really started because at, at that tournament is when I went met uh, Ben Lamb, um, Depa, and a few of those guys who are playing in all the private games. Um, and those branched off into everything from the Beverly Hills PLO private games to these insane short deck PLO games, which I don't think a lot of people even know are and probably should not be a game. It's essentially roulette on steroids. But this short deck PLO game that we would play that was absolutely insane with Sean Winter and San Sobral and Depa and, and those guys. It, it seems like you've lived a, you've lived a charm poker career. When it's going well, it's going great. When it's going poorly, it's going really poorly. That's that's what, one of the issues with playing probably above your bankroll almost at all times, right? Is that the highs are amazing and the lows are extra stressful. It, tell me about that playing above your bankroll most of the time, right? Like, yeah. So I spent I spent six months straight in the lab studying, getting ready to go to Vegas with a hundred k bankroll to play PLO. That was the plan. And, you know, when most people who are going to attempt to be a poker professional do that, they do some bankroll research and understand what stakes they're supposed to play. 
Um, I had, you know, looked into it a little bit, but I, I guess can't fight, fight my own nature. Um, and instead of going into whatever size games you should be playing for a hundred K bankroll, I think the first game I played was the 5,100, uh, PLO when I got to Vegas. Um, and I started very poorly. I lost my first four sessions was down about 45,000 of the hundred K I think in, in the first four sessions that I played. And instead of scaling back and go, you know what, we should probably calm down. My, uh, my next decision was to hop in the 10 K short deck. Yeah. So I, I just, I don't know my, my, uh, bankroll management and, and decision-making at the time was probably not the best, but, uh, fortunately it, it worked out. That's why I, I uh, people who know me and, and we joke often is while I, I certainly have been prone to have some very good runs. I'm, I'm probably also prone to, to crash back down to earth as much as anybody. And where does this lack of risk aversion come from? Like, was it the same way in real estate? No, I think that one for me is very obvious. It is the real estate background. So because I have not just a real estate license, but a brokerage license and a background in that where I can put my head down and work for a couple of years if need to be, I think that makes me a lot less risk averse in poker. Um, I, I know I have something that I can fall back to. You know, I, I, I do, I have a real estate company that's mine. It's just on, on hold sort of sitting there right now, but I, I, I keep in touch with a lot of my clients. And if there was a time where I needed to go back that to that, I do feel comfortable that I could do so, which allows me to take gambles. I think other people uh, probably shouldn't. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense, right? You've got a redundancy. You've got a lifeline in case everything kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. So, you know, I, like, people take bankroll management very, very seriously and very, very strict and very, very literal and to the word. And like every person's life situation is so different. And so like, just do what makes sense for you. At least have a logical plan that makes sense for you and then go from there, you know? Although I do think the vast majority of people err on the wrong side of that. Um, This is some, so I've gotten into coaching a bit um, over the last, I guess, 12 months. COVID has freed up a lot of time because of that, some of my friends who weren't into poker started playing poker a little bit more seriously, uh, asked me to do some coaching. I really enjoyed it, and it went really well with them. I, I was doing a sort of a for-profit coaching system with them and taking a piece, and it ended up going so well that I opened up the coaching to, to some more people. One of the th- main things I've learned in that, just with talking to people, is how many people really don't have a concept of the variance and swings that are possible in poker. Um, you have guys who will go on you know, a 10-buy and losing session and think it's just the end of the world, and it's half their bankroll. It's like, what do you... I'm not the right person to preach that, but if you're trying to take it seriously and you don't have supplemental income, what are you doing if a 10 buy in session is, is devastating to your, your life and your PLO player? I mean, that's just insane. Yeah. You're just living on the razor's edge, you know? Right. I, I mean, you're, you're almost destined to fail at that point. Yeah. You're going to go broke. Your risk of ruin is just way too high and it's pretty inevitable, especially like if you're the, that type of person, I have to imagine that you're also the type of person that, like spending money and probably lots of money right so lifestyle even if you're winning at poker like lifestyle can break you just as easily as playing above your bankroll those do often go hand in hand unfortunately i'm probably probably guilty of that as well it's i would say like either extreme i don't love either extreme right like i don't love the guys that like want to play poker but they start at micros and like only move up stakes is when they right. beat 10 no oh. limit to 20 no limit like that just hurts my head and I, I i cannot like anybody listening to this podcast episode don't go about poker that way like please just 
no, the brain damage that you're going to incur from attempting that is just going to suck all of the joy out of it. And there's so few people who inevitably can make it up the stakes, beat the rake in every single stake they play enough to move up to the next stake. Uh, just absolutely brutal. And then you, what ends up happening is like, yeah, congrats. You, you know, you beat 20, no limit, and then you play 500, no limit. And like the game is a totally different game. Right. Like just because you've beat one stake doesn't mean you're prepared for the next stake. Right. Which is you hear one of the things in coaching and some other stuff, you hear the ridiculous question all the time. Hey, when am I ready to move up to the next stake? And that question is essentially impossible to answer. It completely depends on the foundation of your game, how you've learned poker, why you're beating the stake that you're at. There's just no way for a third person or really anybody to tell you that. Right. I mean, I think that like the best gauge is like, where are you at in your life? Do you have a redundancy? And then just watch your play, somebody who's beaten the yep. games that you're trying to, to move up to and try to gauge whether or not you're a favorite. Yeah, I got one of the weird things about getting to the highest state. Well, not the highest in the world, but very the high stakes that I can find essentially for, for poker is that all the people in those games who are poker players are looking for a way out of poker at that point in life. Everybody who's at the table really in those games is on their last legs of poker and is trying to transition to something bigger and better. And you see that a lot as you climb the stakes and it does make you realize finding some sort of alternate income source, finding something that is redundancy is very, very important. Yeah. The irony, Dallow, is that, you know, when I was playing high stakes at commerce day in and day out, the irony for me was like all these businessmen are playing poker to get out of business and all these poker players are playing poker to get out of poker and it's like basically you know it's like the grass is always greener on the other side type of situation yep. right like the solution- i do think it's like the businessmen hopefully are, are not trying to get out of business for poker as a career i think they're trying to get out of it for poker as enjoyment yeah hopefully. like the, I, I was one of the few idiots who was playing it to get out to get into poker as a career going from business uh yeah I, i've run into everybody and their mother who's now trying to do the opposite thing I, I'm I'm the one moron who was like, ah, this stable career is not really working out for me. I want to do something where I could lose my whole bankroll in a week. It's more like I want to work for my entire life, build up a giant nest egg so that I can spend 60 hours playing poker with my right. life, right? Um, which is just, it, it's just funny to me. Like the solution is neither one of those. It, it's more internal. It's not yeah. really externally based. I, I, yeah, I agree with that completely. So you've played in some pretty big private games and because you're not risk averse, well risk inclined, as they say, tell me about these private games. I've heard a lot of stories, but I'd like to hear some good ones. Yeah. So I wasn't aware when I first started off, how many people sold action in these games, first of all, because I, I was too new to that stake of poker to even realize how prevalent action selling was. And one of the first, private games that I played at was, I think it was a, uh, it's 100, 200. Sometimes they straddle the 400, uh, 40K cap is that game, PLO, just straight PLO. And this is shortly after I had won the short deck, but before playing in the PLO over the summer. So I would say my poker bankroll um, was maybe around 350,000 at the time. Going to this game, much, much lower than it obviously should be. Yeah, you got uh, nine buy-ins. Yeah, to to the game i was down already in the week i think probably around 100 so i was down to maybe about 250 and on that night i was down another 100 so i i had maybe after just being as lucky as you could possibly be binking the 10k short deck 
living the dream, had managed to punt about two thirds of that away already when we're up to this point. We're, but the games were amazing. I knew I was a favorite in the games, but um, the variance is extremely high and, and I knew downswings could happen, but wasn't going to stop at this point. I, I was in it until I was either going to go broke in these games or start beating these games. Um, so I get in a pot that was probably for about half my remaining bankroll, uh, potentially even a bit more. If I, if I lost that pot, I don't know if I even could have afforded another full buy-in into the game. We were at the point of the night where one of the, the, the hosts in the game had pulled me aside and checked with me and go, Hey man, you, you know, you're sure you're okay. Which in a private game, you don't see very often. Usually it's, there's blood in the water come after it. But I think he knew that was, that was not, uh, I, I was playing a little bit outside of, of my comfort zone. Uh, so I get a pot with Tim Pham, who's this, who's this old school mixed game and PLO grinder. He, 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 I think he even has a couple bracelets, but a lot of the old guard will know him. The new guard will have no idea who he is, but he is notorious for only ever running it once, no matter the size of the pot, no matter who it is, that's all he does. So we get all in on about a 70, 30 favorite here. I think it was something like uh, top set versus um, a flush draw and a gutter. Uh, and I had uh, a couple good blockers, something like that. Whatever it was, it was 70-30. And uh, Ben, who had been really sort of washed out for me, but who had gotten me into these games, Ben Lamb, who had become friends with this at, at this point, knows the magnitude of this pot. I think one one other guy had gotten in and folded. There's probably 110000 in the middle, a straddle that the cap had played. And my net worth at the time is down to probably below a hundred once the with counting the money that's in the middle. So this pot is for over half my net worth at the time. Ben, I think, is somewhat aware of that and asked him to run twice. I I go, can we run twice? Tim goes, no. I ask sort of trembling. Ben stops the deal and goes, Tim, Tim, Tim. Can can you run this one twice? And Tim goes, no, man. You know I only run it once. And I'm just sitting there not really saying Tim goes, Ben Ben goes, Tim is a favor to me. You know, I'd, I'd appreciate it if you'd run this one twice. Tim sits there for a second, thinks about it. He goes, nah, deal it. Dealer, dealer whips off two cards somehow i, I time out it. time out while this is all going down like what are you feeling in this i moment? don't i'm so numb that i don't really remember at this point like I, I i have put i for better or worse have done a very good job in my poker career of taking the advice to heart i think i heard this on a poker after dark one day you can't think of the chips as real money and i do a great job of not thinking of the chips as real money, which is probably why I find myself in these ridiculous positions. But yeah, I mean, I was just completely numb at, at that point to what was going on and just trying to play the cards as, as well as I could. So I, I asked him to run it twice. I would love to. I'm, I'm sure deep down I was terrified, but I was trying not to think about that. I was just sort of, I was almost like a passenger watching it happen in front of me. You know, it, it was one of those moments. Yeah, like disassociation. Um, yeah, it was very surreal. As but, they so, say, like, that was the one you needed. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. Yes. Because there is a very high likelihood that if I don't hit that, I just buy in for the rest. Like, I don't think I'm going to walk away and be like, ah, that was fun. I took a shot. Let's try something else. Just buy yeah. in for the rest. But at the end of it, so I, I won that pot, ended up being a winner on that session, ended up grinding back about a, a, a small, uh, about another hundred thousand to end up being a small winner on the session and then went on a streak of, I think I won eight or nine private games in a row, um, just spun it up to the point where I wasn't even allowed in the games unless I was selling a piece to the game runners. Some of the, the, the older regulars in the game were, were started complaining about me even being given a seat. And it went from, I'm probably one bad beat away from being completely broke again to 
re-stabilized and uh, was able to to calm down a bit. Whew. Yeah, that's uh, that's a roller coaster. Um, it, it was indeed. T- tell me about losing your seat, right? Like, how does this happen in private games? Like, what is the what are the dynamics that kind of go and play? Yeah, so the private game scene in general is just purely about networking, right? It's one of the few times that you're going to be playing poker professionally, and a lot of people, professional poker players who almost exclusively play in private games, your your skill at poker is so incredibly secondary to your networking ability and ability to get a seat. So you need a draw. Uh, there needs to be a reason you're invited. And if that's not personality and notoriety, if you're not there, because let's, since I, we've already exposed him, let's use Ben as the example. Ben gets into these games because he is just one of the most entertaining humans on the planet in these games. And the guy, the businessmen in these games, the recreational players simply want the enjoyment of playing with him, the challenge and enjoyment of playing with him. When Ben, for anybody who knows him, will will get a kick out of this. And I'm sure he will too. So Ben sent me a text the other day that said, I turned my hat backwards. What that means is Ben notoriously in these games has an alternative ego called Stephen Douglas. And at a certain point in the night, after enough drinks, for those of you who have never been to private games, this is the highest stakes poker you can think of where almost everybody is drunk by a certain point in the night. Uh, it's a little bit ridiculous, but that's how it happens. So after a certain amount of shots in, Ben will turn his hat backwards and become Stephen Douglas, which is essentially an alternate personality who is one of the most entertaining people on the planet. And that's how Ben gets invited. And he's just, it's fucking amazing. I don't have that. I don't have that personality. I'm not able to just turn that on and be that person. So um, I used wine a little bit to get in public games, but really somebody like me who should be beating the games is going to have to sell a percentage of their action to the game runners. And that's the other way you get in is that once you establish that you're a consistent winner in the game, the guys who are running the game will, will take a mandatory 25, 30% piece of your action in order for you to get a seat. And if you can see, if you're out there listening and you consider yourself a poker professional, not a recreational, really anybody, but if you consider yourself a poker pro or poker professional, when you're getting invited to a poker game, you need to first stop and ask yourself why, because Usually somebody's not trying to give away their or their friend's money to you as a courtesy, right? You're either being invited because they think you're a loser or you're being invited for another reason. And if it's for another reason, you really need to figure out what that is. What are you My alluding rule, to? If there is no logical other reason? Well, you're, you're probably a loser in the game and they probably think you're a loser in the game. And either that's because the poker straight up and everybody else there is better than you think, or there's something else going on, which in private games is very likely to be the case. So I have now established a rule once I started playing in these games and beating these games um, and that word sort of got out and it was a little bit harder for me to get invited, I actually realized that being asked to give up a piece of the game runner, at first I, I thought this was a pain. I, may, I, may, you know, I was naive and think, oh, no, I'm making less than I could be. I would much rather have all of myself in these spots that I'm clearly winning. I've now realized it's exactly the opposite. I won't play in a private game unless the game runner's asked to buy a piece of me because to me that establishes the legitimacy of the game. And I, I would offer that advice to anybody who, who is a poker professional trying to play in private games. You should be in a spot where the guys running the games want your action. Otherwise, you really should question why you're there. Yeah, the incentives don't line up, right? right. Like the, if the incentives don't make sense, you need to start questioning the incentives. And what you were saying about Ben, you know, that's the dream, right? Like what happens when you, when you go to a game and then you're not there the next week, right? 
you want the the recreational players to ask where where did he go where is he right. i really like playing with him right like right. that's the persona that you want to project yep you know as a professional because as silly as it can sound half of your job as a professional is to be entertainment for the people who are just messing around and, and playing poker as a hobby for fun Right. It's great if you're a soul crusher, right? And you go there and you dominate the game and you have a great session. But if you're never getting back, what's that really worth? I would always rather be the guy who's winning a little bit less and gets to play in that game consistently. Yeah. That, that, that is absolutely where you want to be. And we've seen a couple guys over the years who have just epitomized it. You have like the, the Andrew Robles, right? Who have set up the games that he can, he now gets any businessman to come play in. You have Phil Hellmuth is a great i know he gets bashed a lot but he's done this amazing he doesn't have to play in any public cash games ever people enjoy the ability to lose money to him which is a crazy thing to think about but people are actively willing to lose money for the opportunity to play with him and and i think the opposite is true too like people want to beat him as well like it's almost like a bad do i mean i don't know if they really think a lot of these businessmen truly think they're going to beat him but they they want to take their shots they want to they want to they want to see the poker brat right like yep. they want to be yelled at which is a, yep. a really funny thing to want but like they want that you know like a badge of honor yep and you see that you see that more some of the private games gotten in and specifically like one of the the uh, online private games that i was in over the summer during COVID, like my COVID plo private group had a number of professional athletes and ex-athletes in it and you see that a lot with those guys where they just want to compete this is for them it really is more about beating the professionals not necessarily you know phil because of his attitude but just beating poker pros from a competitive standpoint and those guys are a lot of fun to play with because they they just don't stop like their competitive drive is crazy and and if you're getting the best of them they want to try to figure out why and beat you as badly as possible next time tell me about rake right like in these private games like so my experience in private games <laughs> more rake like is it, better right yeah the- in la more rake is better right like some of them are like five percent uncapped and um so the benefits need to be very very high to not play at a casino and go somewhere else where poker is legalized and regulated i would think yeah the the, the games have to be incredibly soft to beat some of the rakes so the most common rake that i'm familiar with in these games is the either 5,100 or 100, 200 games where it's they're, they're usually taking two big blinds out of the pot, which is insane. I mean, in a 5,100 game, you're taking 200 bucks <laughs> out of basically every pot that, that gets above like five or six big ones. I mean, it, it really is like, if you just have a raise and a call, you're pretty much scooping 20% out of that pot uh, post-flop. But um, the games are good enough that, that they're beatable at those stakes. Now there are, clearly private games out there where this is not the case and the only winners in these games are the house in the long run where these guys are taking five percent on cap they are taking two big blinds in games that are not that beatable um that they advertise as beatable but the reality is they're they aren't and the house is just winning fortunes while everybody in the game or maybe everybody but one or two people is losing in the long run and it's something you just have to be aware of and try to figure out the skill level of the other players in the games to decide if the game you're in is beatable or not yeah and it's it's like two big blinds a pot is actually beatable like even at online like you play 200 no limit right yeah because of the cap yeah so they're taking four bucks a hand but it's still beatable right so like you know right it it scales right but when you start taking five percent uncapped like you're just 
everyone loses. Your game is not sustainable. The it's uncapped just... stuff is nuts. And I fortunately, I played, I dabbled in the GG high stakes streets while it was uncapped and thought it was insane and quit very quickly. I've, I've gotten back in there since they've capped it and redone their rake structure. But yeah, what you're saying is, is exactly right. I mean, the, the uncapped rake, I think, unless you just have people completely punting, is, is absolutely unbeatable. Yeah, I got into a pot. Uh, it was like a 10K buy-in against Freddie Deeb. And like in a private game in LA, we both get it in pre and we both have aces, right? So like the dealer runs it out. They stack our chips up. It's like early on. It, it, There's no way this is going to end with they raked it. Yeah, we get our chip stack back and it's like 9,200. Like f- me and Freddie are like, what the what? fuck did you, what the fuck just happened? Like we played a 20K pot. You took 1,600. Like it's... uh that that's sort of oh like my god that i mean that to me is on i have not run into that that is unreal yeah it's it's crazy I, man you to, to, to take it on cap rate and a chop i mean that is fucking unreal and there's nothing you can do about it right like you're already there by taking the seat you've agreed to their draw. there's literally nothing you can do about it at that time but leave and forfeit the the money they just raked from you oh they they give it back actually freddie freddie like catered the event i guess he has like a some sort of food business or whatever oh, like okay. he he raised hell about them taking the cut and it's just like man in these games like that are not regulated by the casino like you have to pay attention to what's happening because if you don't you will get just torched it's just impossible to win i can't i can't. Uh, i would challenge anybody to beat a game like that that seems absolutely ridiculous, but I mean, there are, there are absurd win rates in these private games and it's why people play them. Right. Um, and it's why people can get away with charging crazy rake. It's why people can get away with making you sell a piece is because the win rates that you see in some of these private games are never going to be re- replicable in a casino on in a public online format. I mean, they're just, you get players who don't play poker playing at stakes that you dream about playing with people like that. At. Yeah. And I think like, one of the one of the, like the five percent uncapped games was like a five ten PLO with Gilbert Arenas who ended up dropping like sixty k and was like potting every hand pre flop yeah. on the pot or pre flop on the flop on the turn on the river in the dark like just yep. e- every hand like sweating his cards face up at showdown like yep that's that's a great spot to be in when cards are going your way I, I we had. Uh... So in, in Ivy's room over the summer, uh, there's been a big mixed game going. I'm not a very good mixed game player, but I will dabble on occasion. Um, I learned a little bit last year, um, tried to learn a little bit more this year, but the game's so soft that I, I can't help myself sometimes. And one of the people in that game is Brandon Cantu. And Brandon Cantu sounds like I do with a perspective on sort of risk to ruin and bankroll management times 20. Um, <laughs> I mean, he he will have not only his last dollar, but the last dollar of anybody around him on the table and not on the poker table, on the roulette table. He is crazy. It is unbelievable to watch. The guy How does somebody him. like that survive? Um, backers and having huge winning poker sessions and great games sometimes to sustain him. So this was one of those nights where he had was up. He had played 36 hours straight um, at this point. This is a 300-600 mix game, and he was up around 300,000 in the game, which is an absurd amount to be at. He had just scooped the table for a day and a half straight. We got to the point of the night. Now he was really coming down from probably Adderall or something like that and was getting tired and wanted to stop playing the mix. And we couldn't really say no because the game was running around him at this point. And he wanted to just play big O. 
and we were playing 8K Cat Big O, 100, 200, 8K Cat Big O, and he was straddling to 1,000 from every single position on every single hand. And those are the spots where you just look around and it's like, well, I could very easily lose 60,000 in the next 30 minutes, or I could very easily win 100, and I know it's probably a 65-35, and I don't have a choice but to sit down, buckle up, and see what happens. And those are the spots that you're just not going to ever get in a public game, right? You're like, good luck going and finding somebody who's going to be in your game and is going to straddle to a thousand blind in every position. And you have these opportunities to just have insane win rates. You know, there's a huge variance risk and you know, you might lose, but those spots just don't come up outside of these sort of situations. Yeah. I mean, they could happen in a public game, but one of the private game players is going <laughs> to drag that guy over to his private game right. pretty quickly, right? seems a, a lot less likely you, you hear about it a lot more in a private game than you do a public game especially for for any sort of good stake sometimes you'll hear about guys going crazy like the one two or the two five games but yeah tell me you played in some of the big jrb games this summer tell yeah. me about that tell me tell me some fun stories that was an experience so um i met there's a there's a gentleman who who anybody in these big either online or Vegas games knows by the name of crazy Mike. He's considered crazy Mike. He's called the dictator. He has a plaque in Bobby's room that they bring him when he's in the game that says crazy Mike on it. He uh, is the self-proclaimed reason that the Bellagio still has pan of water. When the waitresses bring him drinks, they have to call him crazy. And now to be fair, he's a very nice guy and tips. Well, like he's not harassing them or anything. It's just this very funny dynamic that he has going on. Uh, it's his, he runs a, a mixed game with JRB. Um, either in Ivy's room or in Bobby's room. I had played with Crazy Mike in some of the private mix games online, but I hadn't met him in person yet. One of my friends was in that mix game. I had just had a big win at at, Bala, uh, at Aria and I think one of the PLO games and was walking over to talk to my friend in the Bobby's room mix game. I sat down, I was talking to my friend. Mike wants to know who I am. We go through the, his normal discussion of, you know, you're going to call me Crazy Mike when you address me. I go, you're what? we've like we played talking about he goes don't don't say another one. i'm crazy about when you walk in the room you say hi crazy mike that's the first thing you do every time so you know we went through the normal crazy mike shenanigans but then after that we started really talking and turns out we had a lot in common some similar upbringing stuff became good friends with him he said next time we play that's why you take a seat i go ah, i don't really play mix he goes no no no, it's fine you know we'll, we'll sell some yeah we want you to get so i said okay i'll consider it. and jrb who was in the game and who was losing at that point then wanted to start talking to me about potentially joining the next game. Cause he's like, Oh, we got this fish on the line. So I started talking to JRB a bit. Um, we ended up talking about wine. I'd talked to him once or twice before. I don't think he even remembered who I was, but we had talked once or twice before about wine. And he remembered halfway through that conversation. I think that we'd had previous wine conversations. So it transitions from Mike sort of inviting me to the game, me sounding semi-interested JRB, thinks, oh, we've got this fish. Let's get him in the game. Start talking to JRB. And by the end of the night, we're just chatting about wine, food, travel, et cetera, to the point that he goes, you know, let me, you live, where do you live? Oh, Veer, I'm at, I'm at Mandarin. I'll drive you home. And I go, I'm at, you know, we're at Bellagio. I go, no, you know, I'll just walk the six minutes home. It's fine. He goes, no, 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 I'm giving you a ride. We walk outside the back VIP entrance of Bellagio and he has his Rolls Royce SUV pulled up on the curb with his driver just waiting. We get, we get in the back of that and he gives me the three minutes. So anytime you want to get in the game, like, here's my number. We'll all, you know, we'll always make it clearly he's been told that I'm a super mixed fish and he get in the game. He goes, well, I think the game's a little big. He goes, don't worry about, you know, I'll arrange for you selling 
40%. So for you, it can be a, a 200, 400 game and blah, gives me the whole sales pitch in the back of the whatever, $500,000 SUV with his ride. I felt way too cool to say no, it completely worked. Bought the sales pitch, hook, line and sinker and started playing in that game. The characters that go through there are amazing. One of my favorite nights in that game was in the middle of the Dan Blazarian JRB private game drama where Dan Blazarian had publicly accused JRB of setting him up at a rigged game. And obviously Dan Blazarian has one of the biggest social media followings in the world. And JRB is a poker professional. So one of the biggest <laughs> social media followings in the world being public, publicly accusing you of cheating at your profession is not going to go over well. And we had a game that night and JRB was in the game and the drama back and forth with the calls and texts to Bill Perkins, the advice that he was getting from the other guys at the table. I think Helmu stopped by to, to try to calm him down a bit. Crazy Mike was trying to calm him down. One of the big other mixed game players goes by Bear was in the game, trying to give him, you know, settle him down, settle him down. JRB was absolutely flying off the walls what's the threat um, here right the that jeremy doesn't get to invite people he loses reputation not only that dies. but the potential that people who have previously lost mm. money in his games now think they've been cheated yeah you imagine that right what if you're a businessman know nothing really about poker play for fun have been invited to a jrb game lost a couple million dollars Months later, a year later, you hear Dan Blazarin going on about how he was set up in a similar game and cheated. Your first thought is going to be, was I cheated in this game? So it's just opening this massive can of worms. And it was clear from the way JRB was talking, going about this and the messages and texts he had. Now, of course, he could be a good actor, he's a public player, but it, it seemed very clear that this did not happen. So the chance of JRB setting up Dan Blazarian to lose a couple hundred thousand dollars and risk his entire reputation in a game that, that JRB, I don't even think was participating in. He had just arranged or had only participated in for half the night is slim to none. What really happened was Dan took a bad beat, got frustrated, had a bad conversation with somebody was drunk and just, you know, read the entire situation wrong. So the battle for JRB to get Dan to try to issue a public retraction was just a sight to see over the course of that night with the different poker players weighing in different calls he had to make the drama, the wine being drunk to try to calm him down. The whole cumulative thing was, was, was ridiculous. It was, it was fun to be a fly on the wall for that one, for sure. I would say too, like it, it's also feels a little dangerous too, right? Like it, it feels a little dangerous for JRB for word to get out that maybe he's running a rigged game and some people have lost a few million dollars. Like I, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable with some of these folks thinking that I had scammed him. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're even talking physical safety, right? Yeah, exactly. Physical safety. Yes. Like the, you're, you're at risk. Like it's a threat. People when don't like losing millions of bucks. To that extent. Yeah. Yeah. People don't like losing millions of dollars. Did Dan yeah. ever publicly apologize or retract? No. So they had one of the weirder conversations through Bill Perkins that I've heard in a long time uh, later in that week. And that was still going on while we were in the game. How is it working? Like is, Bill Perkins in the game is Bolzarian in the game is JRB. Like how did, how does the communication so line? I guess Bill was in the game that JRB was, that Dan was saying JRB cheated him in, which is why he's involved in this. Both of them are much closer to Bill than they are to each other. So Bill was sort of this intermediary for a lot of these conversations. Um, and JRB was too pissed to really talk to Dan directly because it was just a bunch of fuck you motherfuckers and <laughs> dan was sort of the same thing just like if you see that they jrb i think 
publicly posted some of the text exchange. It was basically Dan going, you're a fat piece of shit scumbag. And Jared being going, fuck you, motherfucker. You know, I'd never do this. And that was basically the extent of their conversations to each other. So the middleman was Bill in this, trying to mediate some sort of decent conversation. And I think the way it ended was, oh, and, and, and they hired MJ Gonzalez, Matthew Gonzalez, who's now the guy, who, who good friend of mine from those games. He's, I think, come out public. I think, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this anyway. I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to say this publicly. If I'm not, I'm going to get some very angry calls. No, I, I'm pretty sure this is known now. MJ is Daniel's coach for the Daniel Negreanu Doug Polk heads up match. Uh, it's that MJ Gonzalez, who is one of the, one of the coaches and part of, of Daniel's team, um, private game crusher for a very long time. He's very close with Perkins and was involved in one of these private games as well. So he was hired as like a third party investigator to talk to everybody there, see if there was cheating. going. So he came back with his findings that said there was no cheating. Everybody, he was hired because he's so trustworthy and has one of the best poker reputations possible. So they hired him. He came back and said, I haven't found anything. This was relayed to Dan. Dan was basically like, yeah, whatever. Told Bill, he's like, okay, fine. JRB probably didn't cheat. But JRB is like, what the fuck, dude? You have to come publicly say this to all of your followers that now you put me on blast with. And Jared and Dan being Dan was, I was like, ah, nah, this is behind me. I'll, I'll see you later. And that I think is pretty much how it ended was like Dan going, okay, I probably didn't get cheated based on the guy that like the investigation, of the guy, my own guy I want to hire and the guys I've talked to since that, but eh, I don't care anymore. See you guys later. Oof, that is, yeah, that's a wrap. There are not, not much you, you, you can really do. Um, Brutal. I, I mean, I don't think anything too negative came of it. To JRB, fortunately, I think I don't think Dan has you know the best reputation himself, so he, he his word wasn't exactly taken as law. Uh, but- well, yeah, when you when you get drunk and publicly accuse uh, somebody of cheating and then get fi- found out by a third party that it's not actually going down that way, and you don't retract it, I would say that there are some decisions you've made in your life that have maybe been subpar leading up to that moment. Yeah, but on the other hand, it's kind of, you know if you're in Dan Blazarian's shoes. The way you've constructed your business is controversy is almost in all cases a positive, right? You just want clicks and eyeballs. So he was really just free rolling this. Like, ah, if it turns out I'm wrong or <laughs> JRB, too bad for him. If it turns out I'm right, awesome. And yeah. and that was basically his approach to this. The, the the only person who really got hurt was JRB. Yeah. Um, and I guess he's driving around in a 500 k Rolls Royce. So hard to, I guess, hard, hard to shed too many tears for JRB at the end of the day. Yeah, although he had a he had a a tough. I don't also don't think I'm spoiling this. I don't know when this is going to be released. But he had a very tough uh, comeback to high stakes poker uh, as well. That, that was we we did a we had a nightly mix game session the day after they filmed one of the high stakes poker episodes, and uh, it was very obvious how he did in his session. I haven't seen any of those. Um, have they even been released yet? The high six they books? Yeah, they, they've, they've been coming out since, since December. So that's why I think I'm okay to, to, to talk about it. Jason, tell me about presence. Why did you think presence was the missing weapon in the arsenal of poker players? So everyone's a mindset champion when they're running great, right? But when you're getting crushed day after day and you haven't booked a win in forever and the confidence is just gone... And you're trying to do this thing that you read about in a book or someone told you about being logical and being happy that the money went in good when all you really want to do is cry and hit something at the same time. Like, how are you supposed to be logical in that moment? But that's the only moment when you really need it. 
What you need in that moment isn't mindset. You've already read all the mindset books and you already know what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to do. What you actually need in that moment is presence. Presence is the ability to connect the dots between who you want to be and how you can actually be that person when you need it most. So let's cut to the chase, right? Like, how do you do it? How do you stay more present when you're at the poker table? Well, you get there by first deciding that you want more, right? That you want to grow your intuition, that you want to create more flow in your life, and that you want to reach your full potential as a player and as a person. And once you get there, you can start trying out some of the exercises and practices that I've put together. If it feels good, if you're enjoying it, you can keep going. Right? And if you keep going long enough, eventually you'll find that you're just playing at really high levels, that you feel good with low stress, and you're enjoying your experience a lot more, not just at the table, but away from it as well. I personally would love to have as much presence as I possibly can in my day-to-day life. And if you, the listener, right now wants to add some presence to your game, visit pokerwithpresence.com. Join Jason Sue's email newsletter and then schedule a free consult with the master of presence himself. One more time, that's pokerwithpresence.com. Speaking of insane win rates, going back to that, so I went through a 5,000 hand stretch, which is nothing insane, but it's decent on one of the private apps. And this was in um, a 510 mandatory $20 straddle that I won 187 big blinds per 100 hands over 5,000 hands. Uh, and, and I, unfortunately, after that stretch, uh, it's a little harder to, to be, to bring good wine and, and act like a really <laughs> fun person to play with on COVID games. Like you, you just, you don't get a lot of credit for that, which was one of the main things that I was using to get me into these games. So I, after that stretch, I was uh, not participating in, in that group anymore. Yeah, that's like you you need to have one hell of a fucking personality. It's like that scene in Pulp Fiction, right? About the pig. Like that pig better have a hell of a personality to to be able to pull that off. Yeah, and unfortunately, I I don't. (laughs) There we there we go. I uh, there was no turn. There was no hat backwards Stephen Douglas moment for me. It was just uh, you know we 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 probably don't think you're a fit for this group. Yeah, 187 BBs per hundred. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty pretty good. Playing 300 big blinds deep. So that's one of the factors and every hand is straddled and pretty much every hand is opened. So that, that, that's how that happens. It sounds like a surreal number, but yeah, there was, there was some points where I, I had one of the, the athletes in the game on significant tilt from playing him. And after the game broke, he decided to sit and play heads up with me for a while after that. And there were just a couple spots like that in this 5,000 hand stretch that were just some unbelievably favorable spots uh, playing 300 big lines deep against, against guys who, who certainly shouldn't be. Yeah. I found myself in one spot on a private app one time where it was three handed. And I realized that like the two other people were the same person, but they were both horrible at poker. And so like, just kind of like discerning the incentives of both of them and like what, what he's trying to accomplish. Like that's ridiculous. It was a really good night and I did not get invited back. (laughs) That is, that is unreal. So you, you had a night where you consciously knew that you were playing the same person multi-accounting and they were bad enough that you made a decision. This is still worth it to keep playing and you beat them. Correct. Yes. That's amazing. That's, that's, that's actually fantastic. They were just, the incentives were just so aligned. It was like so obvious what they were trying to do that it was like, oh, cool. Like I'm just going to exploit the living bejesus out of this because they don't know that I know, you know? 
That is that is truly amazing. I, I wish the people multi-accounting at the the 100, 200, 200, 400 no rat hole games on ACR were that bad. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, they they are not, and they, they those guys put in some fucking work. But your spot sounds a lot better. It was better, but then I got disinvited. I was <laughs> I got thrown out of the club directly after well, after that. Yeah, if you're beat if you're beating the same guy twice at the same time, I, I think your goodwill is going to be used up at least twice as fast. Yes, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was the guy running the whole thing as well. So he he was on significant tilt and not very happy about the situation. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, at least you got what you could out of him. I did. Uh, I I destroyed that sheep. I I did not shear it multiple oh, that, times. That, that really is funny. I, can you imagine the the ego blow of somebody trying to play put run poker, multi accounting you, and and just still getting beat? Like, oh man, that's not just that the tilt. Like he had yeah. to be so fucking livid on both of his iPads at the same time. That, <laughs> oh, picturing that is great. I, I, I just I, now whenever I picture any poker player on his iPad on tilt, I just get the the Daniel Negreanu like fuck you cocksucker. <laughs> I just picture this guy doing this on two separate iPads, like one iPad, one laptop. That's amazing. What is the cocksucker motherfucker thing about anyway? Like why why that? Who knows? I, you, you'd have to ask. You'd have to ask Dean Eggs that. I, I have no idea um yeah i'm, I'm yeah, curious have you, have you followed that at all or are you one of the guys who's gotten involved uh, in that i than, i mean i know the commentary but i mean like on a, on a day-to-day are you betting on it now are you tracking the results i've watched two sessions and i've commentated both, commentated both. okay <laughs> yep so i when we did commentary i had no side action but at this point i have gotten in i got in with kevin ravishow who you would never want to have heads up action with in anything but in this case, he was hedging off of his Doug Polk bets. So I was able to get a pretty decent line, I thought, for the second half of the session. So I do have a little bit on, on Doug to, uh, to, win, to win half number two, although I think I'm off to a bad start there. Yeah, I, I would say that like taking action from Kevin, Kevin Rabichow in a heads-up duel is another one of those things that's like, what's going on here? <laughs> what, what, what is happening yeah, I right would here? expect him to have the best of it in almost all sides at all times. He yeah. just seems like one of those guys who is rarely to never in a losing position. Yes, I like Kevin Rabichow. He he's a killer. My associate coach. I pray that Kevin Rabichow never starts his own training platform because my associate coach would leave me in a heartbeat to join. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know he was a, your associate coach. I was just blindly plugging him. No, 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 not not Rabichow. My, my coach Thomas is my associate coach, and he's got oh. such a man crush on Kevin Rabichow that he would abandoned me instantly if he ever started his own training platform it's a well-deserved man crush though i i i'm assuming that run at once takes takes care of him well enough that he he won't be leaving anytime soon because he's but who knows thank god i mean if there's any if there's anybody who could go do open up his own heads up no limit content and get snap followers it, it, it would be him for sure yeah, if Run It Once was to torpedo my operation, just release Kevin Rabichow and I, I'm done. Like I, you know what? I, <laughs> um, I think the Phil, the Galfon Corners challenge is going to be wrapping up for the day in an hour. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to let Phil know. There you go. Yeah, just, yeah. just let him know. So, um, so Brad said that uh, if you ever want to just shut him down, <laughs> um, yeah, just, uh, just let K Rap go. I'm, I'm sure that's high on, on Phil's priority list to, to, to. to Torpedo Brad Wilson by letting go one of the best no limit heads up players in the world. Yeah, it's oh, right. it's top top of the list for Phil. I'm sure he's he's considering every angle, especially by someone who's considered the absolute nicest guy. But who was I talking to the? We're talking to somebody the other day about how unfair the concept of Phil Galfond has gotten. Just I don't know if you followed much of his challenges. The poker world I know has followed it loosely. Most people are not tuning into this 
the Gal von Korneth match at all. But that guy just when, has everything. I mean, has lived the life and has literally everything. And you can't hold it against him because he's such a nice guy and has earned it all. Yeah, you actively root root for Galfond. I mean, he, I got him as a guest on the show because I, I think uh, I called him the most selfish man in poker in like a blog post, right? To, but my rationale was like, we need you, Phil. We need Run at Once. Like Run at Once poker is the hope of poker platforms worldwide. Like sell this shit, promote this shit, tell everybody why it's better than everything else, right? Because we we don't deserve ACR, but we have to live with ACR. Like let's grow Run at Once to the biggest platform in the universe. I didn't realize we were so on the same page. About you, you know, I was uh, I ran the, the and still am a, a staking platform for Run at Once specifically for that reason. Um, I put together and was running um, run at once staking, which is the, for, for new players who ha- don't have a run at once account who want to try it from poker stars or from party poker, or anything like that. Um, we were offering a staking program on run at once to try to convert people and show them just how much better it is. Cause I, I think you're a hundred percent right. I think that that is what the future of online poker should be and should look like. And the way he's doing it is the right way to do it. Yeah, very few people do I believe in, like I believe in Phil Galfon and his integrity and his willingness to try different things, be innovative and sort of just grow poker as a, just as a whole. His integrity is absurd. So when he first announced the Galfon challenges, I being an egotistical maniac who had had a lot of success in PLL recently, texted him about it as a feeler. Just say, hey, I saw you doing this. You know, what odds would you think of? All he does is respond and he goes, I consider you a friend. I wouldn't want to take your money like that. That was the end of the conversation. That was it. <laughs> that, that was it. It was just like, come on, man. You're you're not even you're not even in the ballpark here. This would not be a real challenge. I I would feel too guilty just destroying you in this in this way. I was like, it, All right, it's man. it's like the nicest way to destroy somebody. Yeah. that that it is on the planet. Like, sorry, man. You're 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 a good friend. I just don't want to ruin your whole entire existence like that right but he's right i mean he he's just completely right he could uh, other people in poker i think in a spot as favored as he would have been in would have tried to do the opposite would have tried to sort of like sweet talk me into it right been like oh you know your game's come a long ways you know i, I might be willing to give you three maybe three and a half to one something like that he's just the exact opposite he's like um i'd feel too bad doing this i'm sorry i no. and to be fair like when it comes to sustainability, right? We talked about those super high uncapped rate games in California and those kind of places. Like those games just die and the churn is massive. People don't regularly play in those games because they just take way too much off the table, right? So like it's low integrity, but when you have higher integrity, you create a more sustainable brand, a more sustainable system. I mean, like JRB, right? It has to be higher integrity than 5% uncapped. If he's running 5% uncapped, he's not able to do it for any sustained period of time ever. Definitely. We probably ought to get to some more uh, questions, though, in in this conversation. But yeah, like there's always benefits to having high integrity in the poker world and not just taking as much as you can on one day, like treating people well, acting with honor. And to be honest, like most of the the high stakes pros that – persist and last do have high integrity and that's why they're able to persist and last yeah i mean poker players just need to not be so short-sighted it's not about maximizing your ev in every single hand in every single game that you're always in long-term ev is usually the way to go and you might need to sacrifice something up front for that 
yeah, you got to give a little. Like yep. you have to give a little. You've got to be willing to give some. This the, the easiest and most obvious example to that is when poker pros have to drink in private games. Like obviously you're not going to play as great when you're drunk. You're going to be sacrificing some EV, but in the long term, that's what's going to get you invited back is is fitting in and and sort of going going with the flow in yeah. these games. I mean, it's, it's you can sacrifice short term EV for long term EV. Like there, that's that's the that's the give and take of the situation. Could and should in most cases, right? What would you say is the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? Unexpected. That's a, that's a really good question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Hmm. I, I might need a second to think about it. I think networking. Actually, um, I was somebody who I thought had a very good network going into poker from the real estate side of it and had prided myself um, getting into real estate at such a a young age had, had been a very good networker and had been able to build relationships. I am shocked at how valuable networking and the relationships you can build in poker are from these games. You will get guys that I would never expect to see show up at games and guys who are, you know, um, restaurant tours or DJs or people that you just don't realize are, are, could be from any form of life and passionate about poker and want to play in these games. Um, and the networking doors that they, these things open are incredible, uh, both from I, I've had food relationships, wine doors open, cannabis doors open, uh, real estate doors open, um, almost anything. you One of the guys, one of the guys I, I was recommended from a game that I played in who needed coaching recently. I, I got recommended this guy's coach. I was just told, you know, he um, he plays in private games in Singapore. Um, he plays in some high stakes private PLO games there and needed a high stakes private PLO coach was recommended to do it on the call with him went over it. We started chatting a little bit afterwards and he runs a private jet service. That's what he does is he, he charters private planes to clients. I mean, what a net, what a relationship to now have. Uh, it's been really surprising, fun and cool to, to meet all the various different types of people through poker as the conduit. And it it goes back to like being cool, right? Being being a fun person to be around, and you know, treating people with respect. Like people that want to play for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Guess what? If they're not professional poker players, they are very very successful in whatever endeavor it right. is that that they're in in this world. They're likely at the top of the food chain, and it's just amazing the resources that some of these guys you know have and freely offer to people that they like. Yep. It, not it, saying. Really- not, not saying to like go in with that angle, right? It's just a, uh, it's just a side effect of being a no, big. You, you almost, you have to let that sort of stuff come to you. I, I don't think, I don't think it would work if you went in trying to milk relationships and and do that in the poker world. You you have to just be yourself and let those relationships fall into place. I would say that those guys have a pretty good. Um, brown nose radar and that if that is your agenda they're gonna sniff it out really fucking quick right and it's the opposite of what they want in the games you as the poker player are at that game for a specific reason and it's compete against those guys and give them a fun environment to compete against they don't want to feel like they're at a business meeting or they're being used for anything so i I think you're completely right they they probably have a very good bs detector and and that would never work and and i can say from firsthand experience right like a playing against um a pop star, like the people that were weird. You, you can tell when people are weird, when the vibe is off, right? Like, I, I think a lot of these guys just want to be a, a dude playing cards with a bunch of buddies, drinking and yeah, having fun. Guys night out, 100%. They want you to talk shit to them. Like, they want to make jokes. They want to laugh. They want to feel feel the thrill of victory. And 
the agony of defeat, right? And just be yep. with the boys. Most of them. Now I do have, uh, if, if we have time, uh, I, I have the, ca- I have a counter story to that. Yeah. Which, uh, so I have gotten the, the only poker fight I've ever gotten in my life shockingly happened at one of the most relaxed high stakes games I've ever been in. And it stemmed from this guy. I made a, I was buried in a game. I was down like 75,000 in a 25 K cap game, um, making it even harder to get out. And I made a bet with a guy that uh, I got laid two to one that I would be profitable by the end of the night. And um, so that I couldn't, so that we couldn't play. I couldn't just, you know, find somebody heads up to play all night. We said I had to be profitable by, I think it was 4am. It was probably, um, it was probably around midnight at the time that we made the bet. I said, I'll be profitable by 4am. And wait, you had to be profitable. Could you leave once you crossed the finish line? Did you just win the bet automatically? Even if you gave some back? The, the idea was that I couldn't, I couldn't just leave uh, instantly. I had, to, I had to play as long as the game was still vi- like well and going. If the game was going, I, I'm, not, I'm not supposed to sit down. But obviously, it's going to affect my play a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I ended up getting – I got well up in the game well before that. The game breaks around 3.30 in the morning. Um, the game just ends up dying. I'm up – I'm probably up 40 or 30 or 40 at the time, uh, comfortably up. The game breaks and dies. Text him the next day to settle up. He goes, oh, you didn't play till four. Mm. And I go, what, that's not why we had the 4 a.m. rule. And the 4 a.m. rule was, was in there so that I couldn't play infinitely to get out of the hole and win the bet. The game broke before four. Like, I, I'm, what, what do you, I, this is, you're joking, right? And he goes, no, we, you know, we made, we made a bet that you had to play until four. Like, there was no game. What do you mean? That, that, makes, that makes absolutely no sense. You know that's not in the spirit of what, bet we made and he just ended up taking a stance that he's more important in the game than i am he's a big fish and he's right he is more important in the game than i am has better friends and was just not going to pay me he ended up sort of goading me on for the next couple months about oh hi you got so close to winning that bet of you know just rubbing in my face continually and being a complete asshole about it knowing very well that he was screwing me out of the bet we made and if i had lost i i certainly would have had to pay him we get to a night, one of the games where um, he comes into the game late. We've already been playing for hours. It's one or two in the morning. He comes in to replace somebody. He's pretty drunk, sits down right next to me and immediately just starts being a douchebag. Talking a bunch of shit, blah, blah. We get into a big pot and he massively slow rolls me at the end. I, I get in. I think we get in with, we get all in on the turn. I have, I, I believe I have the nut straight at the time and there's a flush draw on board. The flush comes in. I've already shown my, I showed my cards when we got all in. He was holding his cards, right? So my cards have been laying on the table for a while. I still have the nut straight. The flush comes in and he, he takes a solid two minutes because he's drunk and is really playing up the drunk thing. And then eventually just starts laughing. goes, oh, hey, you know, I have the flush. Just turn to him, punch him in the face. Uh, probably not the best thing to do as the poker player being invited in a private game and this is something that everybody in that game will always remember but yeah i just didn't wait the second he turned over his hand after two minutes i i I just he was standing up and next to me i just stood up right next to him and just leveled it my biggest mistake in that moment wasn't about thinking how important it is to get invited to the game but one of his best friends is an ex-israeli national gardener (laughs) Uh and I'm sure that's the closest I've ever been to death because Tomer was over the table and had me before I even knew what was happening and has told me afterwards the absolute only reason 
that he didn't just lay me on the spot, just take me out was that he really considers me a friend and we've gotten along so well in the past. And that I've given him incredible action in the past when he needed it. And he was having bad nights. So there's been times that I've played with Tomer in the past where he was buried and I've given him all the flip action he wanted and just really play with him. And he said that that literally may have saved your life right here because otherwise you were fucking, you were done. You laid a hand on him at the day. You were just finished. Holy shit. And instead I was allowed to walk away. We cooled down, sort of apologized after and, you know, just put that episode behind us. That was basically my payment for him not paying me was what everybody sort of decided. That was what was mediated in the end. It was like, you were a douchebag to him. He punched you in the face. Let's move on now. And that's what happened. <laughs> that is a terrifying story. Yeah, he was, uh, Homer's a scary dude to see coming at you over a table right after you punched one of his friends. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can believe that. Um, yeah. Whew. Yeah, don't. I guess the moral of the story is, I don't know what the moral of the, is. Is there a moral of the you're story? Going to be an idiot and use violence at a part, which you know, I, I people, I've told, I've told the story once before, and people were like, "Wow, you're an asshole. You punched somebody over a slow roll." It's like, you know what? Fuck it. That guy deserved it, and I stand by that. He absolutely deserved it. But I'm with you. Do, if you're going to do something like that, make sure you're on good terms with everybody else in the room. Yeah, I, I'm going to go on a limb and say that like you probably weren't thinking about anything in that moment other than I'm going to fucking deck this dude 100 i was so tired of that guy's bullshit at that point that i did not care about anything else I, it was just completely reactional he turned over the slow roll and i fucking punched him <laughs> well it's a great story um you, you punched the douchebag in the face and then you almost paid with your life and then yep. the debt got settled so it's it gets brought up a lot i i, I get reminded of this by the guys or some guys bring it up as one of the funniest things they've ever seen in their life at these games and some guys bring it up as man you are an idiot like do you, do you remember when you were this fucking stupid you were you're invited to some of the best private games and you punched one of the whales i, I think i think it was deserved and it either oh, so way deserved. it's a great story for decades to come right it like it's just so a great deserved. story it was the guy. I'm telling this guy. It, it's more than not paying. Not paying alone, I could argue, is deserve it. It was the attitude of like, I'm more important to the games, and I know it, so I'm just going to screw you over. Oh, he was needling you for sure, right? It for was like sure. I'm. I have all this power and all this influence, and I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want, yep. and you just have to take it. That's what it was, and I, I I took it for as long as I could take it, and then at the end, I got tired of it. <laughs> and then at the end, you decked him. Yep. Um, oh wait. One thing I was going to say about that was one of the more satisfying moments of that night. So I, I was immediately escorted out, right? After Tomer grabbed me, things calmed down for a second. I was escorted out, drove away, and then they told me I need to come back and apologize if I ever want a chance of getting the game again. I was very reluctant at first. I said, no, this guy's a douchebag. He deserved to be punched in the face. Eventually realized for the greater good of playing that I should probably come do that. So I come back to apologize. And I do have to say one of the more satisfying things is him sitting outside, clearly still in pain 20 minutes later with an ice pack up to his face and walking into the room that was like you know what at least at least if i was going to do it make make it worth it a little bit yeah it, it hurt it, right at least if at least if i'm going to do it i'm going to get a good shot in do you guys play against each other now do you ever laugh about it is there any no we do not it is not one of those things where it's like oh haha remember what happened no not at all this fucker screwed me out of thirty thousand, and i punched him in the face for slow rolling me yeah uh I guess seeing that personality type that's just going to needle you and, you know, keep messy picking at the nerve over and over and over again. Right. It's probably probably not going to laugh about it. Um, a few no, months later. No, not somebody I'd want to laugh about it with. Yeah, true. 
when you think about joy in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? The WSOP win, for sure. Not just not just the relief from winning it and the happiness from that, but then like I, there was a bunch of the running up Reno guys who were on the rail. A couple of my good friends from like my personal life and, and here in Vegas were on the rail who I got to celebrate that with afterwards. Um, that was really, a really, really a special moment. Uh, as somebody who's grown up listening to WSOP streams my whole life. I mean, I, I remember laying in bed, you know, throughout the entire, for these streams that would go on the entire night. Um, and just watching to their conclusion all the time. So be able to, to be able to, for me, what was like accomplish a, a lifelong goal was was really really cool. Awesome man. Yeah. How, how did it feel to win? Right. Like from what I read, you were three handed and you just won, busted both of them out on the same hand. I did. I, so I had a huge ship lead. I mean, the most the most famous hand. I don't even know if I not an actual famous hand, but for me, the most famous hand that I have played. Um, was a hand forehanded in that tournament against Chance Corneth, the hand that uh, you know Daniel Legrandu t- tweeted about and ha- has gotten some press. I I, I uh, was on Jennifer Shahadi's um, the, the grid podcast and for for that hand uh, specifically, and that that got a bit of a run after it happened because it was was dramatic and Chance and I had had some back and forth at the table. So it, it was it was only I think three or four hands after he busted out. Um, and I had a massive chip lead. I had about a five to one chip lead on both players. Um, and yeah, when uh, opens, I believe the, the, the button just opened jams. They were short stack, small blind called. And I looked down at Jack 10 suited, which in short deck is, um, one of the best possible hands. It's, it's only about 42% against, uh, aces and runs very well against, against other combos, and called and won, and uh, that was it. <laughs> that, that, I, I managed to get them both at the, in the exact same hand, and, and just never even have to play heads up. It was very sudden. Um, it was cool. I think on, on the video, I'm like standing off behind, you know, by my rail, waiting for, and it was just very, very surreal um, for the next 48 hours or so. It was a lot of a lot of. Uh, this feels sort of like a dream. Yeah, that's. I can imagine, you know, especially coming from like where you had been at leading yeah. up into that tournament, right? You're like, you're getting your teeth just knocked in. Huge relief. Yeah. Um, yeah. Huge, huge, huge relief, huge happiness for sure. That's another and, one that you needed. <laughs> it, it was not. Yeah. I mean, that one, I probably that at that point, I was still at the point where if this didn't work out, I would go back to real estate and hadn't missed too much probably would have been okay later in the summer or in some of the private game spots. It was a lot worse. If I had lost at that point, I had, I had given up a lot to get there and would have a much harder time resetting. This one was more of like, I really don't want to go back to my job. Yeah. Look, I totally get it. You feel like being a lone wolf in your poker journey has hamstrung your ability to realize your full potential. So I'm about to give you a golden opportunity to plug into a supportive tribe that will be the poker family you've always wished you had. How much money would you give for one hour of interactive group coaching led by myself, Coach Thomas, and occasionally past guests of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast? For now, and this will absolutely change at some point in the near future, the price of admission to the Live Poker Power Hour is 100% free. All you've got to do to get your invite is head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and hop on the VIP newsletter. No more excuses, no more procrastination. It's time to take action and put yourself in position to turn your poker dreams into reality. 
I hope to see that beautiful face of yours in just a couple of days. So I have the, the opposite question for you. Uh, when you think of pain in your poker career, what's the first memory that oh, comes to uh, mind? This, this one's much easier. I have, uh, this is, is always my, my bad beat story and one of the, the hardest moments that I've played. I, I, this was involved in the short deck PLO private games that I was playing in and I should not have been playing in them. They just grew and grew and grew in size. And we were at a point where they were just, they were ludicrous. I think we were playing 60K cap at the time, short deck PLO and just way outside of my bankroll in a game that has way too much variance. And I was already down on the night. I was having a very frustrating night, had lost much more than I, I should be losing in a game, was past my stop loss uh, and got an all in in, in uh, 100, uh, a cap pot, 120K cap pot with probably another five in there. So I think about 125,000 in the middle uh, with the, the absolute fish in the game. And in short deck, flushes are the nuts. They beat full houses. And I had nut flush, um, and he was drawing to one out. He was drawing to a, a gutter ball straight flush. Um, and he hit it for the 125,000. And I I lost my shit. I, I was, that, that's the only time that I've really like, be, as the results of card, not let the other guy needling. Now I'm telling two, I'm a douchebag stories in a row. But um, <laughs> the other one was turning into, I was, I was both furious, devastated, mad, sad, all of the emotions, ripped the deck. I, I was, I was, but we, we got, I got our group kicked out of, uh, of Ivy's room for the night, actually, after that hand. So you ripped the deck. Yeah. Grabbed the deck, shredded the deck, threw it at Sovereign because he was laughing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was not happy. Uh, you know, that was it. really painful. That was, that was actually a pot that at the time I was on a bit of a downswing and it was, it was mostly a variance. I had had a number of hands, sort of not that bad, but a, a number of pretty unlucky hands, which will happen, of course, in any sample size. But when you're playing way above your bankroll, it hurt even more. And that was one that it was just like the straw that broke the camel's back on the night. And I, I, yeah, not, not fun. How long did it take you to recover? I, didn't, I, ha, I have not played short deck since that night, short deck PLO. So you, what about emotionally, right? Like when, were, when did you play poker next? Did you take That's a, a week question. off? I, I do. I think I took the rest of the week off and, and I'm the kind of person who, when I get really tilted or frustrated at poker, I don't want to get back in the streets and play. Uh, I want to study. So whenever I'm on like a, a real tilt or downswing or something like that, I stop playing and I go spend a week in the lab because to me, when I want to restart, it helps me emotionally and, and confidence wise to know that I'm a better player than when the downswing happened. So that's sort of how I get out of the funk is by studying spots that, that I know I need work on and then getting back at the action, knowing that I'm better than when I took the break. Yeah, it's a great way to frame it. Great way to go about it. Um, confidence does matter. And you mentioned the lab. What is your process for improving your game look like? Changed a lot uh, over the years. I mean, when I was was really learning it, I, I was just trying to grind Sims as much as but after I got got a, a solid foundation grind sims now um it's gotten a little bit more advanced to the point that it's based around the type of games that i'm in um so uh, a lot of it is running spots and visions and then imparting my own uh it's it's tough to get into i i don't know how much i should share I, i'm not 100 percent sure how much how much i should share for some of the private game stuff that i do but i, I would say a lot um a lot of solver work um, a lot of solver work a lot of uh, node, lock, point, it's, node it's locking node locking with specific tendencies i would yeah. imagine at, at this point it's a lot of solver work 
much less general concepts and things like this. I, I try to break down very specific spots and dig into those and, and do some deep dives. So like um, the one last week that I was doing very specifically was under the gun or middle position open versus a button flat where both lines fold and then range interaction on paired boards when um, like button flats behind. So they, like very, very specific niche spots and just do do deep dives into those to try to, to tighten up very specific parts of my game one at a time. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great process. I mean, poker's a complex game. It's hard. You, you can't bite it all off in one go, right? You've got yep. to systematically attack and learn each situation in and of itself. Yep. And I think, I mean, initially my entire poker consumption was run at once videos, which is one of the reasons that I I give Phil infinite credit uh, at all times. I mean, I I literally think run at once poker made me into a profitable poker player by itself. That is a, that is a great testimonial. And you mentioned vision, which is a run at once product, right? Partnership. I actually, for anybody interested, I, I, self-plot i do have a visions affiliate link and it's probably on my twitter which is just dallow poker uh if anybody's looking for it or interested in that um, i offer a free coaching session with a purchase of visions but visions is an efficient simplified monker solver it, it takes pre-solved it pr- takes sims that have been pre-solved plugged into a database and then you can run them much 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 faster now you're limited in that you can't tweak the parameters uh, but it does give you fairly accurate, efficient outputs for a number of spots um, and lets you train and run these spots in a much more efficient way than you would be able to in any other form. And last I checked, um, about a month or two ago, you were begging to get up to 500 followers. And as, <laughs> as, Thanks. As of today, I think you reached like, like 534. So, you know, you, you've come a long way. Oh, in, in I, know we're, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know we're over that because, and I'm going to tell you why. This is funny because I'm not somebody who tries. I fucking hate social media. So this is this is just a terrible part of the conversation for us to be in. The reason that I know it's more than that is because I lost a bunch of followers when I started tweeting a bunch of political stuff recently at all of the new um, during the, the Senate confirmation hearings and things like that. That amused the, the crap out of me is that I, I, I thought it was very funny that as a just completely irrelevant poker player i still have people who hate my political opinions enough to like chain unfollow me the second i start sharing them yeah it must have been brutal you probably lost like what eight nine followers hey, man, that's like a significant <laughs> percentage of my follower base <laughs> uh, no, um, my, 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 so the only reason I, I as you know my like my real name's not on my social media at all i try to stay fully anonymous for as long as possible but i did put together that twitter account um the one you know pin tweet on there is specifically for that run at one staking platform that we do i, I realized I, I had to have some sort of social media presence to be able to reach out to people uh, and get that rolling and that's that's mostly what that's used for yeah i mean you gotta have some touchstones somewhere um yep. as it relates to the world at large but I, I try it's just for my own personal health to not get involved in the political stuff because it's just i, I spiral downward and i get emotional and i get angry and i i'm just like what are you doing like probably half of the people that you're even thinking of interacting with are fucking robots like yep. just leave the computer drop everything and go somewhere else and be happy i gotta admit i've enjoyed it i've taken some weird twisted pleasure uh, probably because it's been going my way recently uh, but there, there really has been some twisted pleasure in 
responding to some of these people and there shouldn't be like i i i, I hate myself for it a little bit but there, there just has be the idiot the, the the idiocy that you see online is mind-blowing and it, it it probably makes me a worse person to respond to some of it and i get all that but there, there are some comments that i just can't help it and especially like with the riots that have we're, we're recording this on january 7th so yesterday january 6th obviously is when we had um, a bunch of racist pieces of shit stormed the Capitol building in our country. And yeah, I mean, seeing the reaction online, it's, it's just, I, I can't help but respond. I, I'm going to try to be more disciplined in that, but it's been fun recently. I could say that like, I was worried about my energy levels coming into this conversation because I've been just deflated for the last 24 hours because I, I just, I've just felt shame. Like at every step of the direction, I, I feel full of shame. And, and I feel like when you're, so attached to one organization that there's nothing that can happen for you to for you to leave that organization or even question it like they just own you and to see it's a cult, it, it's a cult. yeah it's a cult and, and to that's see like so that, see we're talking about the fun I, i'm so i apologize for interrupting you but we're talking about the fun so I, that's all i have i have a meme that i respond to these people and it just says you're in a cult 2020 and it's a format of a trump pence sign and it's just like, that's my response to these people. You're because you're 100% right. There's nothing that can happen at this point. There's no facts. There's no law. There's nothing. They're completely brainwashed. I, now we're just getting political off the rails. But oh, yeah. I just lost half my, my half my listenership um, in this, yeah, no, I, <laughs> this little I, I, segue. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't. I just can't. We, we, we can. We don't have to include any of this stuff. I don't that. care because it matters to me. Like we talked about phil galfon and integrity and the truth and it and it actually matters in this world and like there's a lot of disinformation and i I think that the disinformation the propaganda is really at the root of a lot of this bullshit and like just verify what you're going to believe if you're going to have a strong stance on something fucking watch the full tape of what you're prophesizing like just it's so hard these days with the amount of misinformation out there to find the actual truth. It really is. And when you have somebody who is as powerful as the president of the United States spreading that misinformation, it just makes it very tough on the population to take the responsibility of digging deeper themselves. It it, it does. It puts everybody in a tough spot. I think one of the reasons that I'm a little bit more, I'm not as deflated, I'm a little bit more, well, Two reasons. The, the obvious reason why I'm, I'm not low energy deflated what happened is because all my election bets are now final. So that's great news as of yesterday is that I've gotten to finalize, finalize election bets and, and have uh, gotten to collect on those. But the other reason is I think I'm a little optimistic that hopefully when people see something as insane as citizens storming the Capitol building, like in direct acts of domestic terrorism, some of those people are going to have a, a, a switch flipped and realize that, wait a second, this is insane. We're literal, we're physically trying to take over the Capitol building of the United States. This can't be what we're fighting for and just get some sort of reality check. And I, I'm hopeful that at some point that happens. And we did see it a little bit yesterday with the Senate confirmation hearings where we originally had 12 to 13 senators that were planning on disrupting the proceedings and, and challenging the results. And that ended up dropping to six and then seven in one state. But so I, I do think that hopefully maybe for some people with their sanity left, there's a chance to see the light. Yeah. I think that there are good people 
that are very misled and just please do your research. Like try to find what is real and what is not real. And I listened to a whole podcast on disinformation and misinformation. Um, it was Sam Harris and they were talking about the real goal of misinformation and disinformation. It's that you don't believe anything that anybody says anywhere. Like that's the ultimate goal from outside. You know, if, if Russia's interfering, yep. if China's interfering, that's their ultimate goal. And like, that's the trap that I fall into is that I just don't believe anything anybody says ever because finding the truth of it is so fucking difficult that it's going to take me days and then yeah. nobody's even going to care when I do it anyway. And that, but what you just said is so important. It is so hard now to find the truth that that discourages a lot of people from even trying. Yeah, and, and I'm trying to do a better job. I'm trying to actually try to find the truth in some things, but like, yeah, more work is not what I need in my life. <laughs> I can't just oh. drop drop everything I'm doing to... And it's so frustrating, because, but the issues are so important, right? You almost feel a moral obligation to look into them because this is the, the, these the things that we're digging into are just so important both for yourself, but you know, for the future, for the future of the country and your kids and the type of world your kids are going to grow up in. So it, it's this catch 22 where it's like, it's brutal to find the truth, but you really are obligated to do so. Yeah. The, the fabric of our society is at risk and that's, it's very sad and not something that I would have thought would happen in my lifetime, but. But that's is- why I'm cautiously optimistic is because I think people know that. And then when they see videos like you see yesterday of these type of people storming the Capitol building to take selfies. Like, is that really the side you want to be on when the fabric of the country is at risk? Ah, probably not. Yeah. I mean, and people lost their lives and there's, there's a, there's a price to pay for, for all this, all this stuff. It's just, all of it is just so unnecessary in my opinion. It, like I said, it, it deflated me. Yeah. We, we are, we are certainly, well, let's hope we are at the bottom. I hope so. Um, I really hope so. And on that high note, um, <laughs> if you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be? Ooh, another rip. So this is that this is not going to be. I, I for, this is a bad answer. I, I apologize in advance for the bad answer to this question. But the best poker book that I have ever read by far is Corey Mikesell's Three Bet Pots in PLO. And if you're not a PLO player, I apologize. But fuck that guy is that guy is an absolute genius. And it's not intro level material and it's a very expensive book, but man, if you are at all a PLO player and have the money to spend, he is a, a true genius of the game. Um, and he illustrates the material in a very digestible way. I think he's the best at breaking down Munker Sims of anybody I've ever watched. And yeah, that, that would be my book. So it's, it's a minor upgrade from the Tom Chambers book from years past. <laughs> minor, minor, small. Yes. Uh, I gave, I I told the story. I had a copy of the Tom Chambers book. I gave it to a friend of mine who's the most, he's a math genius and a wizard. And like when I gave him the book, two days later, he just sent me a text that was just like so many numbers. (laughs) Like it is just (laughs) numbers on numbers on numbers. That that makes sense. I was trying to look up real quick and find the price um, of his book, but I'm not sure. I know it's, it's crazy. I mean, at some level, like, but but yeah, that that, that would be my book. I I, I apologize to the 98% of you that are not going to ever be interested in taking a deep dive into a three bet PLO pot, expensive three bet PLO pot book. That's 
for advanced PLL players, but you know, that's, it's the best I've read. Yeah. And for 2% of the audience, you may have just changed their life and earned them a shitload of money over their career. Maybe. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, what would it be? These are such good questions. Um, It would, it would of course involve, involve the notion that it's gambling. Why does that matter to you so much? Regulations in the U.S. I think are one of the biggest reasons that we're forced to play in private games, and you get in a lot of shady, dangerous spots. Um, if it was more widely just accepted as poker is a fun game to play, like chess, for example, I think it would be much more mainstream. The misconception feeds into the underground nature of the game. Um, and for my own upbringing with my parents and the challenges I've gone through with that and um, some family and friends accepting poker as a, as an, as a profession. Um, I think that that misconception is something that a lot of poker players go through and deal with and their family thinking they're all a bunch of degenerate gamblers and that this isn't a real potential career path. Yeah. I, I, the, the most, one of the most commonly questions that I get asked besides do you count cards is, are you addicted to gambling? Right. And it's just such an absurd question to me that it's, it's laughable. Right. But it's really sad that that's the, that's the common perspective. It is. It, that that is the perception out there and it, it would be it would be great if poker was looked closer looked closer to like like chess as opposed to roulette and when you get to the, like the higher levels of poker right just the the diamond like minds of these humans that you encounter you just realize just like how much raw brain power is in the poker world at the highest levels like and these guys to be quite frankly like they play nosebleed poker but they could probably do anything with their life like unlimited potential and to not be able to advertise these people build them up um talk about their greatness is just it's shameful to me it's such a waste I completely agree. Some of these guys are just scary, brilliant. Uh, the best example for me of that is True Teller. Uh, I personally think he's the best poker player on the planet. I actually think he's the best poker player ever. But in in the few times that I've gotten to play with him, mostly at, at um, Triton, and, and heard him talk and say he's just clearly one of those guys who could have picked any path in life and succeeded. Yep. And these guys ought to be celebrated. They yep. they really they really ought to be. All right, we got a got a couple more questions. Then you can go off doing whatever it is that you do with your with your life hit me if you could erect a billboard every poker player has got to drive past on the way to the casino what's it say a billboard that every poker seat open seat open let's go what's something people would be surprised to learn that you're horrible at art anything artistic i don't mean draw i mean anything artistic i can't sculpt i can't paint I, I can't even visualize art, just art. <laughs> uh, um, what's your current big goal as it relates to poker? Uh, winning a PLO bracelet, for sure, since my PLO is is really my game and my bracelet came in short deck. That that would be whenever WSOP comes around next, I, I would very much like to win a PLO bracelet. Are you in the PLO tournament streets, like oh, on yeah. the circuit? Very, I mean, very like much so. The, the tournament streets? Yeah, so I played. I played a lot of the events. I had a real good chance to win a bracelet this summer um, in a in a PLO event. I played all the the GG WSOP PLO events. Um, I had a, a seventy thirty for chip lead with nine players left. 
uh, in one of the 2,500 Pilo bracelet events. Um, I play the Pilo masters events and, and those big events as well. Uh, yeah, I, I, so I final tabled the, other than the bracelet, my, my closest so far is I, I final tabled the, the 25k. I got fifth in the 25k PLO at the 2019 WSOP. But I would I would like to finish one of those off for sure. I, I think uh, I, I put a lot of time into my MTT PLO work. Well, you're, you're a young man. You've got a lot of time. And WSOP is running like seven main event series every year. So you've yeah, got a lot of chances. I, I'm one of the I, – I, unfortunately, that would not be the same for me. I, I want the live final table and the rail and the experience of winning it. Grinding it online would just not be the same. Yeah, and hopefully next year we'll get vaccinated and we'll have a real chance at an actual WSOP. Let's hope. What's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? The one-on-one staking program, for sure. Um, They've just released Sit and Goes. I, I, with you, think that that, because of what Phil's done in that site, they're just running poker the right way. I think that they will help the future of online poker um they've just released their cube sit and goes which I, i'm not going to get into the details here but if you're interested in that go take a look and we're going to try to incorporate staking for cubes uh, for sit and goes now into our staking platform and and that's something that i've enjoyed being a part of it's nice to be able to give back phil has done so much for me um, and my poker career personally that being involved in something like that where i, I feel like i'm positively contributing to the poker community has been really nice and we'll segue to the last question of if the Chasing Poker Greatness, if the Chasing Poker Greatness audience wants to find you on the World Wide Web's, where do they look? Yeah, you I just Thalopoker Poker for pretty much everything, uh, even just Google. But um, it's at Thalopoker Poker on Twitter, and then on on that Twitter, there's a link to my Discord, which is what I use for the Run at Once staking. Uh, I'm just Thalo on the Run at Once forums, which is where all my coaching information is. And that's pretty much it. I try to stay away from personal social media or anything like that. So, uh, oh, and then Twitch, twitch.tv slash Thalo. I'm doing Galphon Challenge commentary. Um, did some, some Doug Polk Negrano commentary with you as well. Um, but yeah, twitch.tv slash Thalo um, for, for streams and things like that. What's the barrier to entry to, if somebody listening is interested in joining your staking plat, uh, program, what do they need to do? Um, the, we want to see volume more than anything. So my goal with that staking program is to bring new players on to run at once. So if you are a player who play even recreational, but has decent hand volume, let's say anything around 5,000 hands a week, something like that, or, or even, even just getting close to, to 10 to 15,000 hands a month would be fine. Um, and you're playing on the other sites currently, uh, we will offer you a very good staking deal. Um, if you're playing anything from, um, let's say no limit five, no limit or PLO five. So $5 buy-ins up to no limit or PLO 200 really relatively regardless of results. We're not, we're not, we're not backing all punters, but I'm not doing this to make a profit. We are doing this to get activity on to run at once. And that's a very commendable thing. And being in, in the U S like a, if there was one poker platform that I would evangelize and love to support myself, it would be Phil Galvon and run at once. This came about because of me. I had a lunch with Phil that I was thanking him for, you know, everything he's done. I said, please, if there's anything I can ever do to give back, just let me know. And then um, a couple weeks later, Phil said, hey, I know, I know you're in the U.S., but we just need bodies. If there's anything you could help do to get bodies onto the site, well, you know, while we're getting started, that's what we really need. And this was, this was the best that I could do. Man, it's been great having you on the show. 
learning more about you, hearing all of your stories, including the one where you almost died and punched somebody in the face um, in a private game. Uh, People are going to think that's hyperbole, by the way. But if you ever get the chance, if you ever get the chance to meet these guys and you meet Tomer or any of these ex-Israeli military guys, you will understand this was not hyperbole. I absolutely believe that there is no hyperbole uh, involved. I, like it's, I had I had a tangible percentage that my life was was ending that evening. That is, yeah, chilling, terrifying. Um, ah, I brought it on myself. You did bring it on yourself, but it, it was kind of well deserved on the other side too, right? It was indeed. It's pretty clear. I, I do say that there's probably not a risk that you were going to kill the guy. You're not going to like take oh, him out of the table, right? No, but I couldn't get away with killing the other guy where I'm a no, relative nobody <laughs> in that game, and these guys would have no problem burying my body. No yeah, you're, the desert is very big and right. very easy to dispose of you. Yep. All right, man. Take care. I'd love to have you back on for round two sometime. Maybe if you get to like, you know, 650 Twitter followers, you can, uh, <laughs> I'll have you back on. But Man, uh, these Twitter follower needles are brutal. Not enough to make me actually care and try to find Twitter followers, but they are brutal. Uh, if if if, I, if we were closer together, I'd be worried about getting punched in the face, but I feel pretty safe um, uh-huh. <laughs> in my little, my little cove right here. Yeah, you know why I, t- I really tell that story just so people don't slow roll me? I, I mean, it, I, I think... I don't even know. Like, I don't know if it's like incentive to not slow roll you or more incentive to slow roll. Oh God. Yeah. Let's let's hope not. Got to be careful. Um, All right, man. Thank you very much for having me on. It's good to talk to you. My pleasure, man. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.